0: It is Saturday Saturday, not Friday I have to, have to get that out of my head It's Friday, I normally Post the show up on Friday nights, But it's going up On Saturday, today Saturday, November 21st 2020, and this is another Edition of the FritzCast, and I'm very excited To um, Keep the intro short and Sweet this week Because I just wrapped up a, a very In-depth meaty, juicy conversation with my guest this week, Kevin Vallier. Kevin Vallier wrote this book, Trust in a Polarized Age, something they started working on back in 2015, I think. And uh, Trust in a Polarized Age, if you think about where we're standing um, as a nation right now in the United States after two very divisive election cycles in 2016 and 2020, um... We are, as I've been trying to state time and again, we are divided. We are, we, there's a problem going on. Kevin Vallier written, 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 written about it. <laughs> uh, written about it. Kevin Vallier is an associate professor at uh, of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He directs the philosophy, politics, economics, and law programs. Uh, and Trust in a Polarized Age isn't the only book... That he's written He's written Must Politics Be War He's written dozens of other uh, uh, Scholarly articles And, and uh, other written work He's done lectures he, There's plenty of resources on YouTube That I could give you uh, But uh, Kevin uh, Kevin's people reached out to me And wanted to come on the show uh, Which I take as a uh, uh, I take humbling uh, because somebody wants to come on my show uh, I always take that as, as something that's just I'm, I'm always amazed when somebody wants to come on the show uh, I do a lot of outreach I get a lot of people to come on the show But but when somebody reaches out and wants to come on uh, that That's just, it's special to me It means something It means a whole other layer of it and, and I'm very glad that I had the opportunity uh, To have Kevin on for this discussion uh, because it's a very important matter. Let's let's face it. We we all live in America. This is the world that we live in, and whether you like it or not, whether you like Donald Trump or not, um, you Trumpies out there who are um, all in on, he's you know the the election was stolen by Joe Biden, and and for you who for you Joe Biden folks who are thinking that January twenty sixth, what whatever the inauguration day is, for those of you on the left who are thinking that from January whatever From when Biden is uh, Inaugurated On is going to be Steps back to normalcy Well The conversation that me and Kevin have Lead to the fact that there's some hard work That's going to have to be done uh, To Walk ourselves back that way So Without uh, without Keeping this stalling thing going on Because stalling is stupid and dumb. Uh, we're not going to stall anymore. You're about to hear Kevin Vallier on the Fritzcast. Thanks for tuning in. All right, Kevin, welcome to the Fritzcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, very, uh, very good topic to discuss today. But uh, before we dive into that and and because it's a big meaty subject, just uh, tell my audience a little bit about who you are and and what you do.
1: So um, I'm Kevin Vallier, I'm a philosopher at uh, Bowling Green State University and um, I do primarily political philosophy, uh, ethics and um, philosophy, politics, economics or what these days is called PPE. Um, I've done a lot of research in religion and politics, some writing there. Uh, And these days, I'm particularly concerned with uh, how societies develop the ability to trust each other um, and how they become more trusting or less trusting depending on changes in culture and institutions. I mean, the fundamental thing that I'm interested in um, is trying to figure out how people can be reconciled to one another despite having deep differences of opinion about politics, religion, morality. Uh, and so on. So I even have my blog reconciled. I mean, it's even about all of those things. So I mean, in a, in a, in effect, everything I'm interested in is how to, how do diverse people coordinate? Um, how do they uh, live well to each, uh, How do
0: they live well together if they can? That's uh, that's actually throughout probably I guess the past two election cycles. That's been a big subject that's popped up on my mind. Uh, Because uh, I don't think you could find a more divisive, polarized time than right now, it seems, at least anyway. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. The Civil War is the last time we had this much polarization in in politics. We've obviously had other kinds of social conflicts uh, since then. But in terms of uh, political polarization, yeah, we're at a unique unique point in our history uh, that's this bad, but simultaneously not an actual Civil War
0: yeah i keep uh, keep hearing people refer to it as like a cold civil war yes almost.
1: yeah like, yeah cold war and that we're not attacking each other openly a civil war and that we're against each other
0: um yeah yeah i like that term yeah and then uh just i want to i want to dive in because we're going to talk about your book right here trust in a polarized age uh-huh. um some of the statistics that go into this uh Back in the 70s, a, a half of Americans said most people could be trusted. It's less than a third now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the 60s, it was 70% American, of Americans trusted. The federal government always or most of the time, now it's only yeah. 17%. Yeah, it's fallen dramatically. Um, and then the other aspect of this is uh, the 2017 numbers. The parties were mirror images of of each other. 70% of Republicans distrusted anyone voting for Clinton. And seventy percent of Democrats distrusting anyone who voted for Trump. It's definitely right. like we're we're definitely in a very heightened gridlock era right now. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's true. That's true. It's particularly a fascination to me,
1: not just as a a political um, or real world problem. How do we deal with the situation? What's bad about it? How do we get out of it? But also um, that it raises a kind of philosophical challenge in the minds of many people, which is, you know, is this all politics is? Is that all it can be? Um, so, you know, there's two kinds of questions that that come up: this practical one, and then this kind of more abstract one that I'm interested in.
0: Right. And um, with that, what what got you into wanting to study this? Is it because that you're in the middle of of living it, and this is like. This is to a degree where this isn't just people saying like, we're not going to talk about politics at the dinner table anymore. This is where people have heated exchanges, like almost over anything. Co-workers have heated exchanges over politics. Everything, I believe one of your lines is uh, from the book is politics is swallowing everything else. It becomes this front runner issue, whereas I, I think there was a, probably a day and age where it didn't. It didn't matter if you were a Democrat or a Republican or, or a conservative or a liberal or a progressive. Uh, at some point, I guess, the tides turned and, and now it's like that's our own self-identity.
1: Yeah, we've had, we have fewer what some call cross-cutting identities. But this has been one consequence of secularization um, in the United States, which um, you know, has proceeded nowhere near as far as it has in Europe. Um, um, and still a lot of people do go to church regularly, but, um, uh, the number of people who are prepared to admit at least that they um, are not religious believers, um, uh, can be quite polarized on the left, but on the right people can be quite polarized, even if they self-identify as Christian, but typically if they don't go to church very much. So there are a lot of people who call themselves evangelical because they quote got saved or whatever at 16, but maybe they haven't gone to a church except on Christmas or Easter. So they're effectively secular in in any case. So I think one kind of deep identity that's decayed is religious identity. And in many cases, political identity just determines religious identity. There's some good evidence on this, that that, um, as people filter into the Democratic Party, they go to church less, and as people filter into the Republican Party, they go to church more. So politics is kind of wagging religion. And that's extremely sad because you know I'm sure some of the people who get involved in developing a worldview um, or a system of values I um, would like to think they developed them because you know that they, they found some meaning in their lives when probably what's going on is um, they just followed the tribe and the practices of the tribe so they joined red or blue
0: yeah the uh, the the tribalism uh... I actually like how you put the mirror in there with, with religion. Uh, I'm, I would be fascinated to see if you kind of agree with this. Uh, it seems more and more as people kind of wane or, or falter in their faith that they're looking for something to replace it that's, that's like right. more concrete, more mm-hmm. more evident in their lives. Is is this like people making the government kind of their, their god almost? You know, I mean, a lot of people think that language is exaggerated.
1: Um, but um, I've seen some research that suggests that it's actually not as exaggerated as you might think, because we think of being religious oftentimes as being very religious, but most people aren't and have never been very religious. Um, so what it means for their government to be their religion isn't like, oh, government, I love the kind of right, thing, right. right? It's actually just a, a commitment to seeing it is that there's a fundamental source of order in the universe. Um, and that it is best to be in tune with or go along with that order. And I think in many very secular countries, this was true under communism, but in many cases, religion was so violently suppressed, it's hard to know. The secularization process wasn't natural, um, like in Russia, for instance. And indeed, many of the Eastern European countries are becoming more religious after communism. In fact, I believe there'll be a day in the next 30 years or so, where more Russians claim to be Christians than Americans, um, which is you know stunning if you think about it. Um, so, um, but in the Scandinavian countries where secularism has progressed the most far, um, it does there does seem to be some evidence the social democratic state is playing a role uh, that religion played. Although interestingly enough, there have been attempts to estimate religiosity in Europe in previous centuries, and it may actually be the case that the Scandinavians were actually less religious overall, even going some time back. Some people have tried to measure things like uh, uh, frequency of church attendance by looking at the way churches were constructed um, that are still around. Um, so, you know, we don't know a lot about the past and also with religiosity. I mean, what did a 17th century so-called, you know, Christian in, you know, Cornwall or or uh, Breton or, you know, all those little, you know, uh, uh, little areas, what do they know? I mean, they didn't, They they heard a mass in Latin. Um, no one gave them any formal teaching. In many cases, their priests knew absolutely nothing. So, you know, it's, it's hard to know um, exactly how, whether we were like super religious and then came down. The best evidence we have from the United States is that American religiosity goes in cycles. So, you know, we have great awakenings, things. Um, and that the U.S., for whatever reason, is capable of extreme levels of religiosity. So for instance, around the Civil War, I read a book by a Civil War historian, Jim McPherson, some years ago where he described the content of the letters of the Confederate and Union soldiers. And he made the remark that this may have been the most religious, two religious armies that he'd ever even heard of historically, um, given how much they, uh, you know, but the second great, oh, let's see, you know, the second great awakening it had had a huge effect. Around the time of the revolution, people weren't going to church, but going to church about as often, maybe less often than they do now. Um, part of that means just means they live far apart, maybe it's hard to get to church, so maybe it doesn't matter, or maybe it isn't a great comparison. But one thing that happened after the end of the Second World War um, is that a whole bunch of people started going to church regularly. So the country actually became more religious during that time period. That's when we added in God we trust in coins. Um, that's when we added Under God and the Pledge of Allegiance. Part of it was a reaction to communism, defining ourselves against them. Part of it, it was seen about becoming suburban. You get your GI Bill, you, you go to college, you move in the suburbs, you find a church. Um, but um, that didn't actually complete itself. So what happened was in the 60s and the 70s, there was a great awakening of a non-Christian sword on the left. Um, and... This was, I think, a very religious and spiritual movement. New Age spirituality came into being, right? Um, this accompanied, you know, the widespread use of, of, uh, of drugs and, you know, spending a lot, a lot, a lot of time with music, um, which is also key to religion. Um, so I see the 50s, 60s, and the 70s as a kind of intensely religious period. It's just, a, it's just that there becomes this new religious division. You have a small Great Awakening in the 80s and the 90s with the revivals. Um, and now we're kind of coming down from that, but the, the hippies' kids are undergoing another spiritual awakening, what some call this great awakening, But in this case, the great awakening is entirely political, or obsessed with politics. And um, the salvation of humanity um, relies in realizing uh, relations of equality and the overthrow of um, oppression by race, gender, sexuality. Um, And uh, on top of that, um, um, there is uh, no belief in real mercy, uh, forgiveness, or reintegration into the community, and a belief that um, the situation we're in is inevitable, that oppression can never really be gotten rid of. It's a little bit like original sin without any forgiveness. But I think it has all the central elements of kind of litany, of behaviors, you know, um, that you see, you know, in religion. They haven't done like the old socialists did and invented their own music yet, you know, like the international. But so I see what's going on in the United States as now politics is is very much like a religion. Um, it's, of you know, happening over the past few decades, but we've, we're we a very spiritual people. And for the most part, that spirituality has been Christian. Um, but today it is not. Um, today, the great awakening among elites is is... Is the social justice, um, uh, syst- you know, spirituality or, or uh, system of ultimate values. So I see it.
0: Right, and then is there any period of time where this is like, is, this is kind of unique in its own yes. time, right? It doesn't mirror yeah. any other time period that we know of in written history, at least anyway. No,
1: its obsession with politics um, is unique. Um, you do still have, a, you know, extremely doctrinaire uh, old communists, but they were mostly active outside the United States. Uh, Marxism was a religion substitute in Eastern Europe and for many in Western Europe, but it never got very far in the U.S. It never got very far outside of the academy. Um, the United States did not have anything like a successful socialist movement. Um, so it was never a very large portion of the populace. Um, but for many, many countries, Marxism was a religion substitute, uh, but just not here. Um so what we're seeing now is a kind of progressivism. It's less concerned with class. It's not very, it's not all that concerned with, with economics. It's concerned with cultural revolution, but within the structure of institutions that we have. Uh, and so, you know, what we see, for instance, is um, the corporate world uh, moving sharply left um, on social justice issues. You remember, the, uh, I was in Toronto um, for um, uh, the, the, I think, Pride Week um, a few years ago. And all the corporations in Toronto had like, you know, rainbow flags or rainbow lights. They all just went went on board. So go they go from being uh, non political to being pretty political in many cases, um, very very strongly. So, and that's not to say whether their values are correct or indir- incorrect. It, it's simply to say this is this is the pattern. But I think what's really unique is it's really two things. The hippies believed. That you could con- that you could actually realize more quality, like that oppression wasn 't inevitable, they also believed in forgiveness and reconciliation and and the Christians kind of always believed in you know reconciliation and the ability to make social progress to some degree. I mean, you have the Augustinian denominations that were more skeptical of this, like the Calvinists and the Lutherans, but still social progress could be made, um, but the kind of social justice movement that you see today, it is merciless, it does not forgive um, without total submission. Um, and uh, it doesn't, it, it's it's fundamentally nihilistic in the sense that it thinks things really can't get better. Um, so that's, that's what I find especially uh, disturbing. But if you notice with this pattern, there is um, in the background, um, the fact that oppression has to be overcome, but it can never truly be overcome, um, that sort of keeps people going. It, does, it, it sometimes demoralizes them, but, but you're never done, right? And you never expect to be done, right? So, so it can drive you forever um, and always be a source of meaning because you're always fighting the patriarchy, right? You're always fighting racism. You're always fighting to be anti-racist, always at every moment of every day until you die. Um, so it is unique in those regards, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you, what, you're, what you're speaking to, in, in case anybody in the audience is, is at a loss here, cancel culture, Yeah. Uh, playing into the, you know, as you say, wokeism. I yeah. mean, and it's very, it's very unrelenting unrelenting and unforgiving because yes. you can see where basically, I mean, it, it's probably more so prominent with public figures and celebrities when they have done something, Twitter. It's ground zero for a lot of this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Alex Jones got completely wiped off of Twitter. Uh, yeah, like well lots rape. of people have been wiped
1: off that were I think less provoc less deliberately provocative uh, yeah. than than he was. Um and I I mean, I should add. I mean, I think I, I one thing I've been surprised by is I understood people who were big fans of of Trump in a way. Um but they're um very recently I I have been concerned uh, since the election, I kind of thought people would be fans, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't be devoted in this kind of very strange way. I mean, I always thought of Trump devotion as kind of um, fear of the left and hatred of the left, Um, and the sense that Trump was the only thing that could stop them, and the sense that Trump was um, the only person who really had the courage, uh, the stones to not care about what they thought. So now I'm a little bit, now I'm, a bit more concerned, um, but um, I don't think it will maybe last very long. Um, so I don't want to say there aren't these things on, on the right. I do think oftentimes the right substitutes uh, things like patriotism of a certain kind, like you saw this, for instance, you know, with a war on terror and 9-11, and did you forget about 9-11 and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But it, it, um, it feels to me mostly reactive in a sense. And a lot of the people that are Trump supporters really do I think uh, have have more often have more cross-cutting identities than people on the left, um, because they're you know they may actually be going to church, um, just doing something a little bit different, unless it's one of those mega churches, you know, like the big, big, uh, the big mega churches that have lost a lot of their theological content. But yeah, the driving yeah. force of much social change is this kind of, you know, great awakening, this kind of move towards a kind of unrelenting, um, merciless uh,
0: pursuit of social justice. Yeah, and I I would I would have to think that this is a uh, that this is very bad precedent that is being laid out uh, in our society with allowing it to continue at least anyway because if there is no forgiveness if there's no if there's no chance at redemption if you're going to get caught by the mob so to speak and they're going to hang you out to dry I mean I, you even said this a little bit earlier when you said. Um, that it's, it's unrelenting and it's, it's punish focused. And, and at times it's not forgiving. At times there is no coming back from it. You're gonna right. get, get the consequences of it and, and you're gonna to have to live with it right. almost because there's no path back to being right. forgiven from
1: it. And I mean, my view about this is that um, that's one of the main drivers of polarization Um, because it starts at the elite level, and then I think it filters down to the politically attentive um, portion of the public. So my view is like polarization is worse at the top, and then it diminishes the lower in status hierarchies you get. Um, So, you know, when you get to the white working classes or the black or Hispanic working classes, they often actually don't pay very much attention to politics at all. Um, and are I think in many respects less polarized. So, so, f- so for instance, I mean, the average Black American um, um, uh, is a moderate Democrat. I mean, they're they're pretty socially conservative. Um, the Hispanic uh, population is too. Like you know, they don't like the Latinx label or never heard of it or whatever. Um, it's primarily a white phenomenon, really radical polarization. It's primarily people with college degrees and then people in uh, positions of power in the corporate world, in the academy, in the arts, um, and in politics. And there's just as much of it on the right as the left uh, at, the, at the party level. But my, my sense is that a lot of the change is driven of what's on the right. And I think this is driving a pattern of distrust in the general population. Um, because the thought becomes that the only reason you would be for one side or the other um, is because they're uh, immoral, um, misinformed, or both. Uh, and, and so the, that's why I do think there were a lot of people that were shy Trump voters this time, in the sense they voted Republican down ballot. Some of them ended up voting Republicans, which is why the polls underestimated them. Some, I think, were actually too uh, worried about Trump, so they voted for Biden, but then they voted Republican down ticket, which is actually unusual. It's becoming less and less common, um, because of people usually vote straight ticket for them, and particularly in polarized times, they vote straight tickets. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, not that there's, <laughs> I mean, I I didn't vote for Trump, uh, and uh, I, I had a lot of issues with him as a kind of limited government uh, person. Um, um, so, you know, um I think that's one of the main cultural drivers of a falling trust. In fact, I, j- just before we uh, got on the podcast, I was I was running through some data on on trust, and um, there are some countries that have lost a lot of social trust, um, but they're primarily countries that have transitioned from dictatorship to democracy recently. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, uh, Poland, uh, Chile, um, uh, well, Spain, starting in the the, the late seventies, early eighties, um, uh, Mexico, quasi, quasi you know, one party state to actual competitive democracy. And one of the reasons I think this happens in those countries is because people are kind of told a lot about how great democracy is and they get disappointed or when there's bad policy, if it's a democracy, you blame half the country rather than blaming the junta in power, right? Junta in power. Um, but as far as I can tell, the United States is the only major developed country where social trust has fallen considerably without some kind of major dramatic institutional change. Um, and so I was just reviewing the data from the, m- the sort of main developed uh, countries of what we have. Um, uh, and I think that's because of this phenomenon of polarization and par- partisan distrust. And I think both are the both phenomena of polarization and falling trust are driving one another. Um, so my main thesis in the book is that there's this sort of distrust divergence loop. We become further apart, we come to trust each other less, we trust each other less, then we move further apart because we're less likely to listen to each other and take each other seriously. And the only way to disrupt the loop um, is, I think, to work within the sort of liberal democratic capitalist framework that we have. Um, And there are various kinds of, you know, fairly ordinary uh, policies that can be adopted to really help things. I don't know if they'll turn things around, but they'll certainly be better than not having those policies. And I think it would be worse to go for some kind of populism, because I think that leans into partisanship. Like it leans into, there's an in group and there's an out group, right? On the left, it's, you know, the 99% versus the 1%. On the right, it's kind of immigrants versus everybody else or whatever. Um, so one of my my main messages in the, in the book is that we need to stay liberal. And there's a lot of things we can do within, you know, not liberal in the, in the sense of progressive, right? But liberal in the sense of believing in individual and group liberty, believing in limited government. You can be a liberal and not necessarily be a big fan of markets, um, that's maybe a liberal socialist, but you still believe in like principles of free speech, freedom of religion and that kind of, that kind of thing. And I think that liberal group is actually declining in influence um, because it didn't reproduce itself very effectively, even though it thought it was. So like what's going on at the New York Times where the older liberals are fighting against younger progressives on a variety of issues and that's spilt out to the public. Um, but I also think it's happened with some of the traditional uh, centrist liberals on Fox News um, who've been ferociously attacked um, 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 by, by Trump supporters to the point where um, you can't even say that Trump lost. Many of people are afraid to say that he lost. So what you're seeing is these kind of two illiberal populations that get a lot of meaning in their lives from t- trying to tear each other to pieces. Yeah. Um, and that's very perverse and it's making all of our institutions work less well. Um, And that's also, the institutions working less well is feeding into the the populism, because the sense is that, oh, well, look, all our institutions are corrupt. So we need radical change. We have to vote for an outsider, Bernie, Trump, or whatever. And then you know Trump comes in and he's, he's worse in many ways with respect to corruption. I mean, I, I, I'm one of those people who thinks that it, it's more important to look at the, the policy changes and things that happen in administration than, than rhetoric. I do think rhetoric matters. Um, but um, uh, I am one of those people very worried about uh, Trump with norm, norm erosion, um, because, you know, however problematic democracy may be versus some kind of ideal, um, it's the best thing we figured out how to actually do. Um, so democracies are just better protectors of individual freedoms than non-democracies. Um, perhaps there's some possible limited government we, regime that one could have, but for now, the best we figured out how to protect basic human rights is by letting people throw the bums out. If you can't throw the bums out, they're usually worse. Um, even if you can only replace them with a different set of bums, they'll they'll just they behave a little bit better.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. More yeah. more accountability to the public, at least anyway. Yes. Then, that's you know. the idea. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. With that in mind, uh, because something very interesting that you said you you said you believe it starts from the top and then flows down. Yeah. yeah. I have always talk i've always talked of politics uh, everything that i see especially when we're talking federal politics maybe not yeah. so much state politics but when we talk federal politics i always liken it to like watching pro wrestling on tv right now um, yeah i feel like they're putting on a dog and pony show for us yeah it's mm-hmm. playing to the bases. yeah mm-hmm. very performative playing to the bases and we kind of see that already because uh as you said you can't say that trump has lost the election uh because Obviously, if if you're on Team Trump, you've got to be all on board on this. The election was rigged, stolen, hacked—whatever, whatever whatever word you want to use. Yeah. But uh, and and while people on Trump's side, while other Republicans are playing that on the news, Lindsey Graham, for example, you might catch him giving Kamala Harris a fist bump on the Senate floor. Right. A couple days ago. Right. Precisely. So, So. They've obviously done this performative thing. Do you think this performative politics has, has directly played into this deterioration of, of trust in the system? Because mm-hmm. a lot of us are looking at it and thinking like, oh, they're just, they're screwing around anyway. They're horses. They're around. fakes, yeah, right? They're, they're dishonest. They're, they're, they're characters. Yeah, there's there a few
1: things that hurt trust more than things like public corruption. And also I think a big thing is when people think that their leaders um, are dishonest. Um, which is just a way of being untrustworthy. Um, So the the performativeness introduces a kind of fake character. So, you know, one way that I think our politics would be a lot better is if we had a parliamentary system without party primaries. Because when you have um, party primaries, they encourage the celebrity kind of behavior rather than the backroom deals where they pick someone electable. And the parties actually offer different platforms because the parties are about platforms rather than about, you know, who's famous. Um, And I also think that the nice thing about parliamentary democracies, you know, instead of a winner take all system, like for us, if someone wins 51% of the vote, say in a congressional race, they win everything. We're saying the UK, you vote for the party, you get 30%, you know, or so of the vote, you get 30% of the seats in parliament. So you get more than two parties, which I think is good for depolarizing. Um, You also see the major parties oftentimes have to go into coalition with other parties. And so they have to publicly compromise in front of the the public. And I think that's also good. Um, Here's another thing that's peculiar, but very fascinating. Um, It turns out all of equal uh, countries with toothless monarchs uh, tend to have more social trust than those without them. And one hypothesis as to why this is. Is that when people can all identify with a single nonpartisan figure, there's a source of unity that does not exist in countries with the highest status people or members of a particular side or team. So, for instance, you you had Queen Elizabeth, you know, if you have Queen Elizabeth around, I mean, she's, you know, I mean, we know privately that she seems to kind of lean conservative um, and seems to, uh, you know, actually be fairly, what I've heard is, you know, fairly devout, but she didn't talk about it, right? So you can sort of think, well, you know, Tony Blair's in or Margaret Thatcher's in or, uh, you know, uh, Boris Johnson or Gordon Brown or, you know, Theresa May or whatever, but you know, there's a Royal family and, you know, they're, they're neutral. So we have that. Um, and because these are toothless politically, they don't get involved in the fray because they have no power. Um, and I think this happens like in Denmark and with a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the toothless uh, Royal families in, in, in Europe. Um, Because there's at least something that everyone can say, okay, we all like that. You know, like Mm -hmm. everybody loved Princess Diana, right? You know, like I've been watching the crown lately, you know, looking at the fact checks and stuff that people do. Um, But we don't have that. Our high status people have all taken a side with the exception of a few wonderful people like Dolly Parton. Um, But there's, you know, she just try to think about someone who's famous and who's beloved across the political spectrum. I mean, you had Mr. Rogers, right with an yep. example um he was a presbyterian minister but people didn't pay any attention to that um uh, and um you know it's just really hard to to think of someone um that is universally beloved but that hasn't taken a side i mean all, everyone in hollywood's taken a side and if they're conservative they get excoriated or even slightly right-leaning uh, like chris pratt um, um for instance just getting you know shut down Um, so, um, you know, that's a problem. You want to be able to think of, okay, these are, these are good folks. I don't know their politics. Doesn't matter. They're great. Um, you want more nonpartisan elites. Uh, and I think that can help people trust each other because they think look, we've all got something in common. Um, but unfortunately uh, in the U S
0: um, we don't seem to have that. You know if you hadn't asked that question i wouldn't have i wouldn't have probably it probably wouldn't have even crossed my mind to even think about it, but now that I'm sitting here going through just name after name after name, i'm like nope i can I can think of at least you know three of my friends who will say something about that person because of something that they said politically, yeah uh, or some tweet that they put out so you know mm-hmm. something in my mind that's trivial but yeah. but it's apparently it's not as trivial as I think it is at least no, not on the they're in the uh, wrong group scale yeah they're in the wrong group that makes yeah. you know you now you got to worry about them that's uh that's it's truly incredible to think uh, about that and that harkens to there's a statistic here that I wanted to look at um it was actually from Pew Research in 2019 mm-hmm. um because the way that they mapped this data, they mapped it from the highest level of, of trust and confidence in the system to the lowest levels. And it's amazing how sharply it goes from,
1: you know. By age. Good.
0: Do- yeah. And age, age as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. The age the age thing is actually the thing that's the, the most dramatic. So so let me say two things about that. First, the oldest people are the ones with the highest level of trust. So that they'll say 60%, you know. 60% or so, or maybe, oh, sorry, let me, it's actually a reversed in this pupil. So th- 30% of people over 65 say most people can't, cannot be trusted. Okay, But that number doubles from 18 to 29 year olds and it, and it shifts. Now you might respond to that and say, well, maybe people are mistrustful when they're young and they become more trusting as they get older. But there's uh, some recent evidence to suggest when um, that people's social trust levels actually harden in early adulthood. Um, and so, what's going on is that each generation is that the, the 18 to 29 year olds are probably going to be low trust for good. And that means, you know, we're passing out of the period of particularly unity in World War II, which I think had a huge effect on trust then you have, you know, a couple decades where sort of everyone's doing well, a lot of the cultural cleavages are not associated with politics exactly because you have a lot of the racist issues, but that's intra internal to the Democratic Party for the most part. It's not, you know, because the the um, Republican Party had no base in the South to uh, organize, there's no organizational basis. In many cases, Democrats just ran unopposed. So, um, you know, until Nixon, you know, the, the race thing, you know, they were hardcore anti-racists, Northern Democrats, hardcore racists, and Southern Democrats. Republicans tended to be more, a lot more anti-racist than the Southern Democrats, but maybe a little less than the Northern Democrats. Um, so we had a lot of social strife, um, but then around Vietnam and Nixon, um, things started to shift, particularly as the Republican Party uh, took over the South. Um, and that's really when a lot of polarization started getting off the ground with Southern realignment, because the Republicans became a competitive major party and not just a permanent minority that oftentimes held the presidency. Uh, you know, the, the, the Democrats controlled the House from ni- you know the early 1950s to 1994. Um, so, so that's really when things started to take off. And that's also around the same time that social trust began to fall was in the, the uh, early 70s. Um, so, you know, that's part of my hypothesis that, you went, that that there's something about American partisanship that is poisonous and that does not appear in other countries. So I, Actually, earlier today I was looking at some statistics, some attempts to measure um, polarize, political polarization uh, across nationally. We have some really good measures in the United States, but um, there hasn't been as much work on cross-national comparisons. And our level of polarization is just an outlier. It's just, it's just really high. Um, some societies have become less polarized. UK has become a bit more polarized. But there's no one that really compares to us in the democratic world, at least among the group that was, that was being analyzed in this. Um, so, you know, my, my hypothesis is that falling social trust, falling political trust, and greater political polarization are all connected. Um, and, you know, there are plausible causal channels that run between those three sets of attitudes. Um, so, so, you know, we've talked about some of the causal channels, but that's, that's really what I see. And um, I'm worried um, because it looks like the average person will become less trusting. Um, one of the um, things I need to pay more attention to um, it's just not always, I mean, the U.S., you know, we have, it's a, it's an, a multiracial society in the way that many European countries aren't. So um, the polling doesn't always break down uh, trust attitudes by race. Um, but the little bit I've seen is that black trust in the people as a whole is at about 17%, um, whereas white trust is at about 46%. Um, Black Americans are the only group that, as far as I know, trust the federal government more than they trust most people, which actually makes a lot of sense in their case, um, because the federal government extricated them from local tyranny um, with the Civil Rights Act. And that's how it was perceived. And I actually think that's how, you know, just about the story went. Um, So I think it actually, I think it makes sense. I mean, I understand uh, uh, why there's that attitude, but um, I think it um, hurts a lot of racial minorities to distrust the majority because you end up interacting with them less. Um, in particular, it hurts economically because when you trust fewer people, you exchange with them less. Um, so even if the low trust attitude is rational, it can also be costly at the same time. Um, and that's the irony of people in low trust communities, no matter their race, no matter their gender, um, is that you know when you're low trust, um, your life goes worse. Um, unless of course you trust and someone betrays you, and then it's even worse, <laughs> which is yeah. why trust is a kind of collective action problem, right? I mean, it's like, you know, um, if you put yourself out there, you might get hurt. If you distrust, you won't get hurt as much, but you'll get hurt. But if you trusted the trustworthy, then you would you would do better. Um, so the best world is when you trust when others are trustworthy, then, you know, when you don't trust when others are untrustworthy, and then when you... Um, um, when you don't trust when others are, uh, 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 oh, you trust when others are, are sorry, <laughs> untrustworthy, right? Because then you get betrayed. Um, so ideally, people are trustworthy and are trusted, um, but that's, that's hard to do. A lot of what I talk about in the book is just how to make institutions more trustworthy uh, by changing incentives. Um, and also ways of making um, policy changes that will hit sources of distrust and reduce them. Um, so, so one thing I talk about, and I maybe think this will be kind of a f- something friendly, very friendly to your, to your audience, um, is we need to deregulate housing construction considerably, particularly in large cities. Uh, and there's, there's um, a couple of reasons that we want to do this from a trust perspective. Number one, um, because the division of labor can extend better and more people can actually afford to live in cities, <coughs> lower middle class people have more choices of job. Uh, jobs, and through you know competition in the market, they are, will be able to get higher paying jobs. Um, they'll also be able to go to the higher paying jobs in cities, which will increase economic growth for everybody because you know the economy becomes more productive. But it also helps poorer people, and it's an upward redistribution. So you know the rich are taking from the poor with the not in my backyard stuff, right? San Francisco liberals dramatically jacking up the prices of their homes because their homes are assets. Um, and making it impossible for poor people to live there. Um, promising them a minimum wage that really doesn't help them. Um, they get fired or not hired or reduced hours. Um, so so um, that's one thing that would help is people would feel like their personal economic uh, prosperity would help and, and that would they trust government more in that regard. Um, but also it would help the left uh, trust more because it would bring about more economic equality at the same time because the rich couldn't redistribute from the poor um, in order to keep their housing prices high. So, so you get things that libertarians, conservatives and progressives would all simultaneously like. Um, and there aren't a lot of policies that can do that. Um, but it's a tough thing because particularly limited government people like people like things to be done at the local level, but having housing zoning, uh, zoning done at the local level it's very easy to capture those regulatory bodies. So we might need real estate decisions being made at the state level rather than the local level. Um, But that's one kind of policy change that I think would, would make a lot of people happier. you get more growth, you get more quality. Um, And, you know, but then, you know, people might say, oh, well, you don't want to trust the government because the government's bad. Well, it depends on what, what the government's doing. And it depends on what parts of the government are active and what people are trusting them to do. So, you know, the main thing that I worry about, you know, as a kind of limited government person is war and, you know, just mass death, usually based on lies and accomplishes nothing. and, you know, I don't necessarily want to trust the executive branch to make better decisions about who to bomb. Um, on the other hand, um, I do want to trust certain parts of the government because I think they'll behave better if they're trusted and if people are kind of paying attention to what they're, they're doing. I want the CDC to be more effective and, and, and to be more trusted. I want, um, and this is, I'm very careful about this, I want the Federal Reserve be more trusted. The very simple reason. If we get rid of the Fed, we're not going to have a gold standard or free market money. We're going to have Congress doing fiscal stimulus, more fiscal stimulus. So, you know, one thing I think limited government people need to be more careful with is about targeting their distrust, because sometimes sowing distrust in one group makes a worse group more powerful. Um, and, um, you know, so we want to distinguish between what parts of government we trust we want to be careful that our trust is a, att- you know, we recognize that our our trust attitudes can affect things for the better. I think many politicians are very narcissistic. They're afraid to be publicly shamed and distrusted, and that actually motivates them to behave a little bit better. Um, not that they'll behave well, but, right, right, but a little bit better. Yeah. So, 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 so we have to focus, you know, our our distrust, uh, and we have to be very aware of what the likely alternatives are. You could say, look you know, the Federal Reserve is way better at managing recessions, so screw it up, but, but than Congress. For Congress, the money will just go to stupid places, right? But at least with the Federal Reserve system, we'll go to reasonable places sometimes. Um, and the Federal Reserve, the people who are in it are not idiots and they're, general, they're not evil. Um, they just, um, you know, a lot of them are, you know, sophisticated but mistaken economists. Um, so, you know, um, I, you know, don't want to say just trust government in general and no matter what it does, I want to be very clear about that, but but I do think that limited government people would be more advised to have a subtler set of attitudes. So, you know, I do want to trust government to do things more like get out of the way and allow the economy to grow, right? Like just don't do things that slow growth because growth compounds and it usually redounds to most of us. Um, And so, um, you know, uh, you really don't wanna slow down the economic growth rate. Uh, There's another uh, thing that I think people should consider which is that um, um, uh, government doesn't doesn't just grow larger when it's trusted, sometimes it's easier to shrink Um, Because when you're lower trust, um, you oftentimes, there's some some new evidence on this suggests that lower trust societies are more eager to regulate because they are less likely to trust people to do the right thing when they aren't looking. Um, A lot of high trust countries were able to dramatically shrink how much the government was involved in the economy, like Sweden, whereas we were not able to do that, even though our government was no more large as theirs. They still have a large government because they redistribute a lot. Um, but um, they have very free markets. Um, and they were able to sell off a huge number of state assets to deregulate their economy considerably. Um, and I think that's harder in our country if someone, not that, not that Swedish politics is all nice or anything, but if someone on the right proposes a tax cut, people don't scream in apocalyptic terror that we're going to be living in an oligarchy, right? I mean, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's a messed up policy, or that's wrong, or boy, I really hate that guy. Instead of the entire world will come to an end if we lower the marginal tax rate by 5%. Right. Right. Like, Pelosi called the Trump tax cuts, what did you call it? Like one of the most apocalyptic, you know, evil bills like ever. And it was just like getting our corporate tax rate to where it is in most of the developed world.
0: Um, yeah. So,
1: you know, it, that's the that's the difference. It's also the difference that once the once the election is over, people can just kind of go back to life. You know what I mean? I mean, that's one of the things I dislike the most about Trump is that he is so good at keeping us all thinking about him. And, you know, I wish, you know, whatever you might think about him, maybe he's a bulwark against something worse. Maybe you think like me that he's sort of corrosive on the whole. Um, I want to be able to not pay attention better. I mean, I know I have self-control, right? Like, I I, I know that I could just choose not to watch, but it's so, you know, like, either fascinating or horrifying, and about 5% of the time, hilarious, you know? Um, So, yeah, it's hard to look away. Biden will be, I think, pretty boring. The the big question is whether the people whose staff his administrative roles tend to be centrists or hardcore progressives. If they're hardcore progressives, it's going to be some of these places. It's going to cause a lot of problems. So like health and human services, for instance, if they, if they start to do things like stripping away religious exemptions um, and just creating a whole bunch of conflicts, like trying to publicly fund abortion. Yeah. That's just, that's just salting wounds, you know, mm-hmm. um, or yeah, particularly the, 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 Trying to force public uh, uh, funding for abortion, um, trying to regulate how religious schools do hiring in accordance with the anti-discrimination law—that's going to be a huge problem um, if, if that's if that's pushed. Um, so you know, the conflicts on sort of the sexual morality and anti-discrimination issues is has is just been raw ever since the contraception mandate and Obergefell. Um, um, and, um, I think that, um, I was very opposed to the attacks on the religious groups that saw in the Obama administration. Um, Rugerfeld was, you know, this is, I think, in balance, a, a good thing. Um, there were worries in the, um, in the, the, the case where, um, the thought was, well, is this just going to be same-sex marriage or what's going to happen to the people who disagree? And the solicitor general was like, yeah, it's going to be a problem. So, you know, I think the, like the optimal policy from my perspective would have been like to privatize marriage, but given that that was never going to happen, it would be better to have same-sex marriage with religious exemptions. Um, But I um, worry, like under the Democrats, there's going to be a lot of attempts to undermine the religious exemptions. I think the religious exemptions are essential when you're changing um, power structures. So from the from the sort of uh, Christian dominated uh, elites of the past to the secular dominated elites. Exemptions allow there to be transfers and and relative differences in power um, where people feel like, okay, look, at least I can do my own thing, you know what I mean? Um, But if the sense is that, no, no, I'm going to be drug along to this no matter what, then the thought is, well, you know, maybe if Trump runs in 2024, I better look at him closely again. Uh, I know a lot of Christians as a Christian myself, I didn't really face the tistation exactly because I just have such a weird set of political views compared to most people. But a lot of it was like, yeah, I don't like Trump as a person, but I'm just terrified of what's going to happen to the Democrats getting power. Some of that was like overly apocalyptic thinking like, you know, Biden is not a socialist. I heard people say, oh, he's such a scary socialist. Yeah. No. Yeah. Now, the biggest problem with Biden, from my perspective, is he's just going to bring all the old, you know, pro, pro-war people back in. Um, yep. That's the biggest thing we've got to worry about. He's just going to destroy a country. I mean, at least Trump didn't destroy a country, you know, like, like Obama with Libya or W with Iraq or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- that's, that's one of the things I'm really worried about is the relationship between religious conservatives and the LGBT community, because neither one of those communities is going away. Um, and we just absolutely have to learn to live together. So that's something I've done a lot of thinking about. I mean, you know, as someone who's been in liberty circles for a while, like you know, like the two of us, you know, we know lots of people that are gay and lesbian. But oftentimes we've hung out with people on the right. So we maybe not religious conservatives ourselves, but we we know them, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we interact with them, right? Um, and so you know what My life is, you know, has both kind of sides to this. And I just think, really, we just don't need to hate each other and tear each other to pieces. There are lots of ways that through individual liberty and group liberty that we just don't have to fight. And both groups can say, look, I really dislike their values, but they're not going away. Trying to destroy them will just backfire and let's just move on. Right. Right. And that's what liberty allows you to do, right? It allows you to move on. Right. Whereas, if we have to make a collective
0: decision that's imposed on everybody, you can't move on because your fundamental values are at stake. Right, and it just breeds more animosity between yeah, one right. group or another. That's right. That's right. So, to to drive this home, Kevin, um, yeah. a lot of a lot of what I get out of this, and and I argue with a lot of I butt heads with a lot of libertarians on this uh, quite often, especially around election seasons, is that um, the the change has to come, and it has to come in focused, targeted, incremental changes, correct? Yes, Yes. I'm very much of the reformist uh,
1: uh, side of, of, you know, sort of limited government folks, in part because I think radical moves often can backfire, even if they're in the right direction. Um, So, you know, and I I think that's happened. Like, I think a lot of the privatizations that were attempted were good ideas, but because, you know, like the the way that the particular cultures worked that ended up being rent seeking and graft uh, rather than real markets. So, you know, I think a lot of the the big lurches in our direction can go wrong. And then, you know, we've, we've undermined our own goals.
0: Right. Right. It, it, it's, it's like, if you don't plan and pay attention to the little details that yeah. the bigger picture gets swallowed up and, and you're stuck with, you know, things that you could have planned for things that you could have seen, Yep. but you didn't take the time and you didn't take the consideration of it yeah 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 or, or
1: or even even the big things right russia was communist for 80 years no one knew how to run a business i mean so of course it's going to go to a few guys that you know have been interacting on international markets that run natural resource firms and stuff like that i actually knew what they were doing to get involved um So, you know, uh, Russia, you know, the USSR dying was one of the great achievements of human history, greatest achievements in human history, because it was one of the most evil regimes that had ever existed in the history of the human race. Um, But it could have, the move could have been more effective, you know. Um, So, you know, particularly when we think about privatizations and deregulations, we want to make sure that the cultural preconditions are present, right? So in many cases, it's not just attending to the, the details, it's attending to even like the whole whole picture because property rights are a kind of culture. And, you know, we have to cultivate certain cultural norms in order for real property rights to take hold and stay around. In the U.S., it's a lot easier to do because entrepreneurship is not just common, but it's respected. Um, Even a lot on the left. Um, um, So, uh, yeah, I think that we have to be just subtler in who we trust and who we distrust. We have to be subtler in looking at the institutional
0: conditions when we try to move policy uh, in our direction. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, uh, I've had you for nearly almost an hour now. Oh, dear. I, <laughs> probably, I could probably go even longer with you, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, I appreciate, yeah. yeah, I appreciate everything that you've put out there. Before I let you go off though, uh, this, is, this is your chance to throw out any social media uh, uh-huh, where people uh-huh. can pick up copies of this book. Okay, so,
1: so uh, to find me, just do this. You can go to my firstandlastname.com, kevinvalier.com. You'll see a link to my book, uh, Trust in a Polarized Age. You just scroll down, and there's a 30% off from Oxford. You can get the book for 25 bucks. Um, and it's just a big discussion of trust and polarization and how we can reform institutions to get trust back. So even if you're not into the moral part of the argument, there's a lot of data there that I think you'll get a lot out of uh, to engage. As far as just me on social in general, um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @kvalier, K-V-A-L-L-I-E-R. And you can look me up on Facebook. I have a public profile. You can friend me uh, there. I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't do as much with that. Um, and then you can look at my blog, uh, Reconciled, which is just KevinValier.com Reconciled. And you can add that to your RSS feed. So I can be emailed to at KevinValier at gmail.com. I'm very easy to find. All right, well, thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you.